Greetings reader fans, welcome to episode 8 of Data Slate, Lave Radio's book review show, your best companion whilst waiting for the computer to scan all those planets in the galactic core. I'm your host, Station Commander Alan Stroud, and on this episode we'll be talking about all the latest news in science fiction and fantasy before bringing you our reading recommendations. Joining me is a returning veteran space adventurer fresh from Counting Beans, John Richardson of Starfleet Comms. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, one, two, three, four, five. Apparently you're qualified to do that. Yes, I am qualified, but uh, less about the counting and more about the framework for end-to-end business view of governance of enterprise IT. That's what I was doing. So there we go. <laughs> Very dry. <laughs> you lost me at end-to-end, I think. I think was the... <laughs> The moment that I, I kind of tuned out. But yeah, no, obviously took you a week away. We had uh, the delightful Rory Scarlett and our late night elite adventurer Colin Ford on instead. And looked at Dan Simmons's Hyperion, the Lost Fleet Saga and Age of Wonders from me, which is by David Hartwell. Oh, excellent. So yeah, it was quite a mix. We had quite dense science fiction, quite space opera science fiction and a textbook. Okay. So, which do you think was mine? The textbook? <laughs> <laughs> was I right? Right answer. Right answer. <laughs> there there you go. go. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd get it. I thought so this week it's been a little quiet in space. So I don't have that much for us to talk about in the news, but I have one or two things in that I've got a little bit of news of stuff that's been going on at my work, really, just to sort of talk about in that in preparation for the starting of the new BA in creative writing, which starts in September this year. Yes. What we've been very, very fortunate to have is we've had quite a lot of old magazines donated to the university to give us a bit of a flavor of short story anthologies and what have you. Oh, yeah. One of the collections that we have had donated is a collection of Analog. Now, if you ever read Analog, the science fact and science fiction magazine, it is one of the premier American magazines for science fiction writing. You can still sell stories to Analog now. It's published very, very regularly. It's been running since the 1950s, and it was run by the original editor was John W. Campbell. And we had this very large collection of analogue magazines donated to the university, and they run from 1963. Wow. So I've got sat here in front of me the 1963 edition from September. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Do you know some of the incredible stuff? Because it's a fact and fiction magazine. You know, you've got short stories. And I I was just having a read through what's tabled as the short novel, Industrial Revolution by Winston P. Sanders. And that's a really interesting story because you've got characters who are out in the future, but they drink gin and bitter. (laughs) (laughs) And smoke big fat cigars. It really has a sort of different vibe to it. But also the advertising and the the science articles are really interesting as well. Mm. The back cover is advertising a a sort of cigarette packet size rechargeable battery. Wow. A nickel cadmium recharger. Apparently nickel cadmium batteries. They're the in thing. That's new science, you know. Then on another page I found there's a calculator. I will read you this. Oh God, here we go. I love these adverts. (laughs) The Bond Context brainchild it figures exclamation mark this smart little machine weighs only six pounds it does just about everything the big expensive machines do and a couple of things they can't 
The big machines add, subtract, multiply and divide. So does the Bond context. Here's what the expensive calculators can't do. They can't double as a high-speed 10-key adding, subtracting machine. The Bond context can. They can't be operated by anyone just after a few minutes' instruction. The Bond context can. Most important of all, the Bond context is the first compact 10-key machine that is truly portable. Goes to work anywhere. And it's great. It's superb. I t- you look at this, it's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and a zero. And the zero is like a space bar. And it's then got its sort of plus minus keys and all the rest of that. And they put a pair of horn rim glasses right on the top. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to know the price? Yeah, go on then. Only $125. Wow. And that was a lot of money in those days. <laughs> 1963 for a 10-digit calculator. And there's even an order form here. I could cut it out and send it off. (laughs) Do you know what? What you've just described there, it's the same as what I've just been listening to this week. I've been listening to Relic Radio this week. Oh, yeah. And their podcast is all of the, you know, the short stories, the short audio dramas from the 1950s and 60s, science fiction. Oh, wow. I wonder where they get them from. Yeah, I think it was NBC they were coming from and all sorts of stuff. So so basically, they were were broadcasting fantastic stuff. And it was just the same as yours, where it's like a vision of this astronaut flying to the moon, and he's smoking on a cigar, and he's having a martini, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's all of this going on. He's like, I'm going to get there before those damn commies. Yeah, it's exactly that. You've got a selection of book reviews in there as well. Mm. And then there's letters to the editor. And then there's a science article about how different planets have different north stars. Because, of course, their polar axis is different. So if you were on Mars, Polaris would not be your north star, which is you kind of go, yeah, yeah, it's fair enough. But it takes them like eight pages to tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with graphs oh, well, well you need graphs There's, yeah to, to, to obviously to illustrate what different stars might be and, and stuff and one of the little things in that particular article I'll just quote you a bit G.P. Kuiper and myself have tried to determine the orientation of the axis of Venus on the assumption that the bands which show on the disc in the ultraviolet light are parallel to the equator <laughs> God. G.P. Kuiper who the Kuiper belt, the Kuiper his name. Kuiper belt, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's really, really interesting to sort of go through it and see what they kind of knew, what was the thing of, you know, it's it's almost like opening the pages of a time vault, mm. you know, in that regard. I think it's, it's tremendous. Stuff. Um, you know, it might bring back your youth for you. <laughs> <laughs> now, you see, I got you back there because I've been yes. waiting for episodes and episodes and episodes to get you back for a nasty comment you said to me. So I can't are, remember right? that comment. <laughs> <laughs> you said somebody was nice and then you said not like you. Oh, did I? All oh, right, okay. Yeah. So there you well, go. There you go. Well, consider yourself revenged. Yeah, Tuesday, <laughs> sir. I keep it cold, but I get there in the end. So yeah, this is fantastic, and I've got a whole fifty years worth of these to go through. Yeah. Well, you better hurry up then. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I better, better, better get on with reading them. What I'm planning to do is actually I'm going to try to digitize a few of the bits and pieces so that you know, so there's a decent record yeah. for the university rather than relying on the fact that the slightly dog-eared 1963 copy is going to survive too long. So I'm keeping them all in nice little wallets and what have you. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to digitise them and then perhaps we'll contact Analog 
and talk to them a little bit about the fact that we've got quite a collection of this old stuff, which I think would be really good. More up-to-date news. The only real thing that uh, that I could find that was of significant splash on the internet in the last week is about Simon Pegg, which, for those of you that maybe don't recognise the name, where have you been? Simon stars as Scotty in the remade Star Trek series and has also written a variety of films, but first shot to fame in Spaced and was then subsequently in Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz and Run Fat Boy Run. And he's produced an article where I think he's been kind of a bit misquoted, hasn't he, John? I'm not sure whether he's been misquoted or not. He's admitted comments he made criticising the dumbing down of cinema. I haven't read the actual comments myself. But I'm just looking at what's being written. And I think he basically said that there's an idea society that we are kept in a state of arrested development by dominant forces in order to keep us more pliant. We are made passionate about the things that occupied us as children as a means of drawing our attentions away from the things that we should really be invested in, like inequality, corruption, economic injustice, etc. And instead of concentrating on that sort of thing, we actually sort of look at the ooh shinies on the cinema screen. That's what he's getting at, really. To be honest, he's been kind of quoted as attacking his own industry, Mm. I think. I think that's the point that they've tried to make. He's kind of not. He's just making an observation on society, and he's paraphrasing Chomsky. Well, he's also said here, he's, he's actually supported the notion. He said, it makes sense when faced with the awfulness of the world... The harsh realities that surround us, our instinct is to seek comfort and where else where the majority of us were more comfortable than our youth. He's kind of demonstrating a level of cultural understanding that probably the popular press feels a bit frightened about. Mm, Yeah. Because Noam Chomsky's phrase, if you know it at all, from manufacturing consent is sport is the opiate of the people, which essentially means people go off and they they root for their football teams and everything else rather than being political, rather than being engaged in politics. That's what they go and do. That's true. And if we look at this election that we have just had and people always cite the non-voting public, the apathy and so on and so forth. And then they, they look at other aspects of society and they see how popular particular things are that are not politics. And they they look at the diversion and see the diversion as being too successful. It's seducing people away from the things that actually are meaningful in terms of their life, you know, that will affect their life, Mm -hmm. and also meaningful in the ways that, you know, other people's lives will be affected. You can look at that and see that as a matter of economics, because the budgets of some major films could solve poverty in several countries. Indeed. But the revenue gained from those films is revenue for the films, by the films, if you know what I mean. So yeah, It is what it is. Mm. It is a comment on, on what is there. It is not a comment to say we can do better, but it is a comment to understand what we are. It's like, look what we are actually doing. Yeah. Yeah, and understand that when you go off and choose to spend two hours in the cinema, you are going off for a diversion. You know, you are subsuming your daily concerns. You are probably parking your worries about the fact you haven't paid your council tax or the fact that your sister's got a problem or whatever it is. You're parking your worries for a while and you go and invest in the person who's on the screen. You go and hope that they're going to have a happy ending and you feel a bit better when you come out the end. But it's quite contrived. The definition of escapism, really, isn't it? Yeah, and and I guess what Simon Pegg is talking about here is that escapism has become a culture, not just an isolated thing. And I think it has done for a long period of time. I think it's it's just possibly a little bit more obvious. Um, Isn't that what you would do when you move away from a society where you were actually working the majority of the day and had lots of labour-intensive tasks? 
you know, yeah. even doing the washing, as in washing the clothes, used to be more yeah. labour intensive a couple of decades ago, three or four decades ago. All of these labour saving devices really do give you that free time so you can now afford to escape because you've got that leisure time. And I guess it's a comment on individualism, mm. isn't it? If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah, exactly. something that people always yeah. sort of talk through. If you think about the fact that the more primal needs, the lower tiers, yeah. are solved much more easily for us in a particular part of the world society, i.e. in the West. You know, we're not worrying as much about where the next meal's going to be, whether we're going to be warm and comfortable at night. Mm -hmm. And then we can then concentrate on those higher needs. I guess the point here, though, is that once you get past a certain level, that need becomes quite individual. There isn't a societal need. Yeah. Do, do you see what I, I mean? Do. Because if you look back at you know sort of ancient societies and you see some of the monumental things that were constructed or were were made, you look at the pyramids, you look at this, you look at that, and actually that is a massive amount of work by lots and lots of people on one project, and it's not a project that was integral to their survival. It's not a project that was integral to their food, to the integral to their to their warmth. It was actually a project that was integral to their survival because one person decided if you don't do it. You're gonna die. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. So, it, so it was one person's ambition, and so it became a communal task. And I, I guess the point I'm trying to get to rather badly is because there is lack of a, a community goal beyond the essential needs of our society. Then actually we diversify, and so then what you find is we're attracted by whatever the whatever your you know, particular like, interest is. Yeah, yeah. yeah, cultural moths. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, you know we're attracted by football we're attracted by star wars we're attracted by the avengers i do think he's got a point about how he's quite saturated and i think it's been saturated before but i think that if you just take a step back and look at say for example the major film industry during the summer watch how many blockbusters there are week on week on week mm. and if you were a real cinephile would you be going to the cinema every week to see this to see this to see this and if you miss one how do you feel about it you know mm. I think that's interesting. So yeah, so I, I I think he was he was criticised because they probably didn't understand him. That's more like it. I would tend to agree with that. In fact, it's a similar theme going on in my next book. Well, there we are. So he's the popular press has kind of gone for a cheap shot here. Mm. If anybody is interested in getting his full view, it is worth going and having a look at SimonPeg.net, which is his blog essentially. If you look at the article for the 19th of May, and it's entitled Big Mouth Strikes Again, then you'll find basically his complete explanation of what he said. And you've got to remember as well, he was on a bit of a promotional tour, a Q&A, wasn't he? He was on an interview tour yeah, for, exactly. for a film. Yeah. So they get a bit bored and say some stupid things. He kind of passes it off a little bit as being slightly stupid in the way in which it was said, rather than it actually being stupid, he sort of says it. So, But he then goes on to explain it, and I think his explanation is excellent. Mm. Okay, so that'll do us for the news this week. Short and sweet. Moving on, we will get to the book choices and we will get to John's book choice. So we'll see you after an advert break. You've flown ships at max speed. You've felt the power of the 30 megawatt mining laser. You've experienced the efficiency of the MB4 mining machine. Wow. But it leaves every hardcore miner with just one question. Why can't I get a shave that's that fast, close and efficient? Introducing the Saracen MB5 Shaving Drone. It's so smooth. 
combining the power of a mining laser with the convenience of a drone. It's like every hair is targeted by a fighter and destroyed. Saracen's patented shaving drone attaches to your face at the start of the day. Leave it to do its work, and when you come back to check, your face is shaved. He's so smooth. It's like I'm mining my face. The Saracen MB5 shaving drone. Now I feel manly. Saracen shaving. Making shaving an unnecessary adventure. Greetings, Commanders. Second Technician Fozzer Forrester here. If you'd like to catch the crew of the Orange Sidewinder, we broadcast live every Tuesday at 8.30pm BST. Fly safe, and if you can't do that, fly dangerous. back so john with an extra week away what are you recommending for us to check out this week well with the week away i thought uh, instead of <laughs> revising from a course no no not really i did revise from a course I, well you're past now I, it doesn't I did matter. yes yes so, you know you don't have to say that i revised from my course or anything else you can say i knew it already i did it was it was such a breeze <laughs> so i picked up a copy of glitch in the machine by edgar swamp one of those dystopian novels, you know, it's set in the future, 2025, so it's near future. And uh, Okay. Yeah, what? <laughs> what? It's, it's not post-apocalyptic. Oh, okay, fine, right. fine. It's okay. not so, so post-apocalyptic. You've, essentially, you've moved your genre very slightly. <laughs> yes, about uh, an inch to the left. <laughs> yeah, you've evolved from post-apocalyptic to dystopia. Which... <laughs> yeah. Oh, <Okay. laughs> <laughs> All right, so tell us about the book. Right, so, so the blurb is, it's 2025, the United States is in the shadow of a puppet government run by giant corporations, and the 99% live without rights or the protection of government regulations, fully at the mercy of the 1%. Among the most powerful entities are the pharmaceutical suppliers, the weapons manufacturers, and the insurance companies, which rake in massive fortunes because of the mandatory insurance requirements, but never pay out. Amid this corporate dystopia, we find Floyd Jasper, a mercenary whose job title as a health insurance claims investigator belies his actual function. A maniacal killing machine, he's good at what he was programmed to do, punish insurance fraudsters brutally and permanently. But if you think the status quo seems unhinged, just wait until Floyd's drug use explodes and he has an illicit affair with a co-worker. Floyd's world continues to unravel when suddenly he realises that someone has tried to kill him. A fast-paced, in-your-face, rollicking rollercoaster ride to hell and back, Glitch in the Machine immerses readers in a world that's so far off balance you won't know whom to root for. It's over-the-top political satire at its most fearsome. Ooh, Ooh. Sounds good. It does, doesn't it? So, yeah. yeah, I was giving this a good old read, as you do. I found it was a very interesting book. It was, you know, there was very few... Errors in it. There was a couple of things that annoyed me a little bit about it, like numbskulls were spelt wrong and stuff like this. And I, I don't know why some books do that, but it's just one of those things that when you read the, you know, those words and it comes up again and again and again, it's a frequently used word in the book. It kind of grates on you that it's spelled incorrectly. So anyway, it's got a B in it. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> but in the book, it doesn't. Oh. <laughs> See, anyone you're recommending this to now is going to read that book and it's going to be going, bloody guy, if he hadn't mentioned it, I wouldn't have noticed. Right. <laughs> so, you're welcome, everyone. 
So anyway, <laughs> so you start reading this book, and obviously it's got to set the scene, and uh-huh. it does so. Um, but by chapter ten, I was now starting to worry about my own sanity, really, because the scene setting was unrelenting. It seemed to go on and on and on, and it wasn't just descriptions of anything. It's it's uh, it's like a narrative, a first person narrative. Okay, mm-hmm. so you you see the world through the eyes of Floyd Jasper, and it's exciting. You 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 know it, it is fairly entertaining, but the world he's describing is just unremitting horror. Okay, yeah. So, and it just seemed to me to be too much, you know. Mm-hmm. But then we go on, and towards the middle of the book, we've got some excellent, really well paced, page turning action sequences. So. There's lots of stuff going on in the middle. Absolutely brilliant stuff. Right up and towards the very end of it, really, there's loads of action sequences. So this is the author's strength, I think. He's mm. he's really good at writing those, and he captures everything in there quite well. And those are the most enjoyable bits. There was a bit in there about transvesticism and uh, homosexuality, which I found stretched the credibility a little bit. It was I think it was only in there to give some exotic locations rather than anything else but you know the action sequences were good and then you saw the book started to play itself out you know he started to get the wind up towards the end yeah so i won't disappoint anyone or anything by saying what the ending is clearly i don't want to do that but i found that i thought i had a grip of what the end was going to be before the end so i'm not sure if anyone else would and i'm not sure if it's really good of me to say that or not but i've said it so Okay, so <laughs> so you found, you knew where it was going to go at the I end. I kind of knew where it was going to go, but there were a couple of very clever twists at the end as well. So whilst I knew where it was going to go, I still had to go through that journey to get there. Sure. So. Well, I certainly, from the blurb, I certainly like the idea of taking the fraudster or, or debt collection mm. idea to a, an armed bailiff. <laughs> Pretty much, um, yeah. Essentially. Yeah. I think that's quite a nice premise, and it does do what we talked a little bit about before with future prediction. When you go near future, it does kind of allow you to take one aspect of current society and sort of caricature it, make it larger than life, and, and reflect it back. On, on saying the piece where I was going on, you know, up until chapter 10, it was starting to get a little bit grating in terms of setting the scene the description of the united states and the society as a whole isn't too dissimilar to what people are saying on the internet about corporations now and you know maybe some conspiracy theorists and stuff like that so it just seemed to be a whole load of those really in those 10 chapters so just essentially realizing what people are saying yeah do you see what i mean right because Let's be honest, even though we might sympathise with some of the elements, certainly with America's situation with healthcare, I mean, it's it's mm. just strange. Their obsession with Private not health. having, <laughs> yeah, whatever it is, you know, they sort of see us as weird as having the NHS, whereas we, we kind of see them as weird as not having it. But the key thing, you know, I'm getting to is that there is a sort of melodrama to the way in which people paint the world sometimes, mm. in that sort of painting corporate America as being this intentionally prejudiced juggernaut when actually quite a lot of the time it might well be the effects are just as bad as some people are saying you know but sometimes it's not intentional it's just pure ignorance mm. the evil is is sort of almost ignorant evil as opposed to to sort which, of machiavellian evil which is what we're talking about really in terms of the comments that um, simon pegg was saying yeah absolutely no you that know, that kind it, of it all kind of fits. links in 
And, yeah. you know, so he's, he's done that description anyway. And I think what he's also done, he's done something which I found to be quite a feat, really. He's turned the protagonist, who you absolutely hate at the beginning of the book, into a character you've got some sympathy for by the end. Okay. Usually people tend to go a little bit the other way, because, of course, if you have a character at the beginning who you can't stand, yeah. then you might put it down. Yeah. You know, so actually they tend to go sympathetic and then unravel. Yeah. But so it's gone the other he's way. gone the other way, which is brave, certainly. Yeah. Because you, you think, oh, I hate this guy. I hate this guy. I hate this guy. <laughs> That's why I think the first Ted chapters are quite tough. Maybe have some historical stuff for the character at the beginning to take the edge off, but that's just my thoughts. Okay. Have you got a section you want to read? Oh, I certainly have. Yes. Oh, okay yes, then. Yes. We, the health insurance company, did not at any time recommend that you eat at a restaurant of such questionable quality, nor did your policy indicate you would be covered if you did. Well, what? Did you even read the terms of your contract? What good would it do, his wife retorts in anger, making a green eye sparkle. The terms of our contract, for all practical purposes, require that we never get sick. And if we do, the insurance company won't pay for the treatment ever. That, I say coldly, is correct. I stand. You have three options. And I remove the forty-five from my holster. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to say what the three options are. No, nope, fair enough, fair it. enough. <laughs> Short and to the point of what's there. Looking at the premise and the detail here, I'm reminded a little bit of George Alec Effinger. And he wrote a series of books. The first one was When Gravity Fails. And when Gravity Fails is the story of essentially a, a sort of a fused city, a multicultural city in a high-tech near future. And you have this one character who's a bit of a drug addict mm. who's recruited to then solve a murder mystery. And he solves this murder mystery, but the only way in which he can defeat the murderer, because you know, the sort of law enforcement's a bit mafia and a bit gang-related, yeah. only way in which he can defeat the murderer is to fight the murderer and kill him. And it's a book where the drugs are quite futuristic, and all the characters seem to go in for these body mods and these mind mods, which basically are plugins yeah. to give you an adrenaline rush, to give you an endorphin rush, to sort of modify your behavior and so on and so forth. So they have all these plugins for their brains. And um, the particularly individual premise of the idea is that you can put this mod on, a bit like virtual reality, that will then turn your environment. And you can see it almost in some of the augmented reality devices we have now, that will turn your environment into the environment of a story that you are participating in. Right. So if, if you put the James Bond mod on, you think you're in a James Bond film and you think you're James Bond. And so every conversation you have will be edited in such a way as to you will hear the words that will make it fit to your James Bond adventure. Do, do you see what I yes. mean? And you go in everyday life. How dangerous would that oh, be? That would be pretty bad. <laughs> so, so, so essentially, yeah, that's his, that's his, his yep. sort of idea. But it sort of made me think of Glitch in the Machine because of the nature of the main character, the sort of slightly un... Um, Unhinged? Yeah, or, or unorthodox main yeah. character yeah, placed within the situation because he's sort of plucked out of what he's doing, isn't he? You know, he is. to, to sort of do this. Well, there's a, a... Yeah. I mean, not only is he this sort of door-to-door -door sort of insurance claims person, there's a further plot where he gets plucked out of that and put into something else as well. And then again, it happens. So there's quite a bit going on, really. It is quite a good book. That's what I mean. It's a good page turner. 
It's just the beginning, that's all. Sure. Okay, so where can we pick this up? You can pick this up on Amazon.co.uk or .com, I would imagine. It's shown as a Kindle edition as one ninety seven, so that's £1.97, and the paperback at £10.25. And also for Kindle Prime or Kindle Unlimited people, they can get it for... Free. Zero pounds, zero pennies. They can indeed, yeah. So yeah, if uh, if they want to do so. So that would be a glitch in the machine by Edgar Swamp. Yeah. And right after this, we'll be back with my book choice. Is your life like this? Take that, evil pirate scum! Pew 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 pew. Pew 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 pew. Second technician Chris Forrester to the gantry. Second technician Forrester to the gantry. The vending machine is broken. I repeat, the vending machine is broken. It could be like this. Drive charging. fiction and fantasy festival which celebrates creativity and is inspired by the computer game elite. Join us for board gaming, LARP, cosplay, LAN, tabletop roleplay, workshops, special guests and of course Elite Dangerous. LaveCon 2015 is being held on the 11th and 12th of July just outside Northampton, England. Book your tickets at laveradio.com. space is cold in here. That commander has a cheek sitting up in his cosy and warm cockpit while we haul radioactives around his cargo bay. Oh, is it cold? I hadn't noticed. Oh, that's right. Why, you're not even shivering. Maybe it's because I picked up this North Coast cargo bay sweater. It keeps me warm and stylish. Say, that is a nice jumper. It's made from the finest Verex wool and handcrafted by novitiates in the underground monasteries of Van Manen's Star. Wow. Where can I get one? New North Coast Cargo Bay sweaters. Be the envy of your friends. Wow, every lady from here to the Empire. Be warm and toasty, even on the tenth planet of a dying star. Now on sale at Spark and Mensa. Better now? Better? Why, I feel so warm I'll probably never catch man flu again. Spark and Mensa. Because nothing says sexy like a neck-high jumper. Okay, and we're back. So now turning to my book choice. Now I've gone for a book that was sent to me to review on SF Book. The author himself sent it over and said, would you be interested in reviewing this? And I said the same as I say to most authors, which is, yeah, thank you very much for your email. I'll put you in the queue. I'll let you know when I get round to you. So I got round to this book this week and it's, it's got some really, really interesting elements. So this is The Shiva Syndrome by Alan Joshua. Now, particularly interesting thing related to this evening's conversation is that where I was talking a little bit about the analogue and the old tradition of science fiction, oh, yes. 
you had in that old tradition elements that were championed and where we were talking last week about david g hartwell and what he talked about about how some of the old stories that people went wow it was all about the vision Mm. and less about the writing quality it's an interesting thing here with the shiva syndrome because this book so the balance is unusual i'll explain in a minute so anyway here's the blurb a secret russian mind research laboratory in podolsk erupts annihilating thousands and leaving a monstrous one mile deep crater in its wake Bo walker parapsychologist and reluctant empath is coerced into joining a research team, codenamed Shiva, to investigate the enigmatic event. Walker must fight his way past political and military deceptions and a host of deadly adversaries to unlock the riddle of the Shiva syndrome. Will he have the physical, emotional and spiritual strength to defy the danger he faces? Or will they destroy him before he can come to a new challenging understanding of the nature of reality? Mm. I wouldn't be recommending a book. I don't generally look at and focus on a book unless there are elements to it that impress me. And one of the reasons I choose to review books is to find books that maybe haven't necessarily been picked up. You know, I'm quite happy to review books from major publishers, but one of those guilty pleasures is to find something that no one else has necessarily found, you know? The interesting thing with this is it's very well-researched. The writer, Joshua, has obviously read around a lot. He knows his science. I am a bear with a very little brain when it comes to science. The scientific formula of what he's put together here is very interesting. And then the pseudoscience that he builds on top of that, i.e. the science fiction premise built on the science, is very interesting. He pulls an Asimov, which is Isaac Asimov was famous for putting two scientists in a room and making those two scientists talk to each other to basically give you the premise of the book. Joshua does the same thing, but he doesn't use two people. He puts... Six people in a room, eight people in a room. And it means you have quite dense chapters exploring the nature of reality, exploring the nature of human consciousness, exploring the possibility of supernatural powers, of ESP, of telekinesis, and so on. And he comes up with a very plausible explanation as to how this might happen and how this has triggered this event in a very near future society. So... Again, you know, we're dealing with quite current technology, but with a couple of secret organizations and the sort of science fiction thriller premise that you you kind of get Mm -hmm. occasionally. The weakness is that he can't plot compress. So we have very exhaustive scenes. And that's not to say they're not exciting. There's a whole sequence where they go and explore this crater that has occurred where this explosion has happened. And it's exhausting. You know, it's that kind of disaster after disaster, white knuckle moment after white knuckle moment. And it really does bring on tender hooks. But there are no moments at all where we kind of cut a few hours and get to the next plot important scene. Yes, do you see what I mean? I do see what you mean. Yeah. But yeah, so he, he doesn't plot compress very well. Okay. So, uh, basically, this book, having the Shiva syndrome, and uh, you're talking about these scientists in the room and all of this, can you tell us a little bit more about the main characters? Bo Walker, I think, actually, is a little bit weaker as a character. He's better as we move on. You know, he becomes much more interesting because he's he's sort of this jilted science researcher who was involved on another project and was betrayed by the project leader. Essentially, he was blackballed. Right in the scientific community so he's ended up as like a part-time lecturer at a university and no one will fund him for anything they leave him right on the outskirts of everything 
And then he's suddenly called back in because of this crisis yeah. and they realise it's his research that they're actually working through. And one of the reasons he's been put on the fringe is because they needed to separate him from his research, i.e. they wanted to explore it, but they didn't trust him. Right, yeah. So he's interesting as he develops. As we first encounter him, he comes across a little bit like one of those a bit too competent heroes. Okay. You know, those kind of guys that... Because he basically, he's met by these two army guys who have to bring him in. And he's a bit too good. Yeah. Do you, do you see what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And I, I kind of, that to me doesn't quite sell. But then two or three chapters later, once his flaws start to come out, had a very, very difficult upbringing. How he's hidden certain things about himself. How he's resentful about some of the people he's having to work with. Once those things started to come through, he becomes a much more interesting character. Mm-hmm. And certainly how initially I thought when I had them all sat on the plane and all these scientists sat there, I was thinking, God, I'm not going to remember any of these people. <laughs> Got all this list of names of people. This, oh, this isn't going to work. And he's actually been very good at keeping voices distinct. Some of them are a bit two-dimensional. He's got a geologist and, you know, another hard sciences character who always adopt these very critical negative positions and snipe. All right. Essentially, he's, he's engendering sympathy for the others. Yeah. And that becomes a little bit formula at times. But still, you know, it gets the information out. Yeah, if it works. But the information's, yeah, the information's interesting. It is just what I was saying about how some of the nuances of the writing are not as good as they could be. I've got a stock phrase, like you were saying about numbskulls, yeah. right? If anybody puts in the book, surveyed the scene, when it's not an outdoor mountain range that they're surveying, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me in, in like, a, a kitchen. Yeah, I've seen that you know? so many times. It's because... like, John surveyed the scene, and it's like they're talking about a bridge. <laughs> yeah, or... Or even if there's there's like I don't know somebody's just dropped all the mashed potato all you over might as the well floor. Have just said John looked through his eyes. Yeah, <laughs> or, like I say, if if someone's just dropped all the mashed potato on the floor, if they're surveying the scene, they're kind of looking at it that little bit too coolly. You know what I mean? It's it's that little bit too withdrawn yeah. perspective. Yeah, the mashed potato does not require that. It requires you to get down there with a dust pad of brush so yeah there's one or two nuances like that one or two phrases Mm. in the writing that says to me and echoes a little bit of what hartwell said the vision becomes a bit more important than the substance of the writing in that regard and it's not often you know these lapses are not often at all i was gonna say because you Um, you sound as if you really enjoyed this book i i I have i you know it didn't affect you too much did it no it's surprising for me and that actually i i felt that certainly a lot of the premise he built i could appreciate because i've read a lot of the books that you know he was building the premise from and it, it was very accurate and then the science element, it doesn't take much to convince me that you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so where he's fitting sort of philosophy and mythic principles into the science element, for me, it worked really well. And the way it's gradually unpacking, it's worked very, very well. But there are one or two contrivances. At one point, we have a dream sequence, which I, I think could probably could have been deleted because it, it sort of foreshadows stuff that's later, and you, when you discover it later through their investigation, you kind of think, oh, yeah, you told me that in the dream sequence. Mm. I could probably just get rid of the dream sequence. Yeah. And there are one or two bits where there's a little bit of precognition used, and after the precognition's been used, 
you're viewing all the other scenes afterwards, mm. thinking that that's going to happen. So you're looking every clue related to that. So it's a little bit too obvious. He's he's sort of hung a light bulb and gone, "Hello, you know, yeah. look at this. Make sure bit. you remember this yeah. bit." <laughs> um, and actually, actually, he'd do better just to not do that because the nature of his writing has settled you into being very engaged. And so actually, he doesn't need to hang a light on elements of the story they could just go on you know and, and they would discover it and it would be fine so i think as i said i think it's just a little bit of sort of inexperience in those small elements but the premise is lovely and the way he's made use of the hard science in the structure is really impressive and much more impressive to me than other authors who have you know who have massive reputations so yeah did you want a bit <laughs> yeah go on then read some okay So I'll read a little from the prologue. I'm not going to read chapter one, because chapter one is the introduction to the main character, which is not the strongest bit of the story. And I don't really want to reveal too much of the later stuff. So the prologue's a bit more action. The subject's naked body hung suspended in a liquid-filled transparent vertical cylinder in the centre of the basement laboratory. Straps battened down a helmet topped by transmission antenna that covered his head and shoulders. When he exhaled, a stream of bubbles emerged from a plastic tubing at the top. Stephen Durr appeared insect-like, a huge mosquito lava floating under the surface of a pond. Below the tank, lights refracted upwards, casting rippling waves across cinderblock walls. From loudspeakers, the sound of gas hissed over an amplified heartbeat. He was asleep, but not dreaming, at least not in the usual sense. Gases fed through the silicon mask he wore shaped or drove his brain activity. Two brain areas normally most active in sleep were being altered by a third, transforming his dream state. The helmet microphone transmitted his piercing cries to the investigators monitoring him. His body heat rose abruptly, raising the liquid temperature. The plastic helmet softened and fissured. Scalding water trickled through the cracks, reaching his uncovered face. Small air bubbles covered his blistered skin as the fluids climbed towards boiling. Blood seeped from his nose, his eyes and ears. Then his body convulsed. A pulsing red aura formed a few millimetres from his hands, spreading to enshroud his body. His wiry muscles spasmed repeatedly. His limbs thrashed wildly, battering the enclosure. The first spidery crack appeared in the tank wall. There you go. It's got that sort of thriller element to it immediately. You've got that sort of immediate danger in terms of what's there. But can you sort of mean the description's quite thick and technical? Yes. Yeah. I got a good visualisation of what was going on there, which is obviously the aim. And I wasn't really allowed to fill in much of my own detail there. There was a lot of detail given, wasn't there? Yeah, that's the point. I think you know you're getting here. You're getting a very dense vision. Mm. I still liked it, though. It was written in such a way that it came across well, though, didn't it? So... Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't. It's not bad in any way, shape, or form. I, I, I do genuinely like the work. I think that to me there are do's and don'ts. Mm. There is a thing about anchors as well. You know, when when writers are using anchors, most publishers say just say said, mm. just say said. Occasional replied or explained, but usually just say said. And there are certain writers occasionally they use everything but said because they're worried about how many times they've said said. Mm. So they have interjected, interrupted, ejaculated all the different things that they can put instead of said. And then there's another way of doing it where you can have people doing something whilst they're speaking. Jonathan got up, blah, 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 blah. And actually in here, there are one or two of these conversations that I mentioned with all the scientists where they all appear to be doing something. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) 
so so uh, so and so stood up from his chair. So and so put one foot on his chair and continued. You know, so and so sat down. So and so, you know, it's just a little bit distracting because because just sit down and talk. Like, <laughs> well, it, it just you know it probably could have done with just no anchors. You know, just just take the anchors out and just let the let the speech run a little bit. I think he's you know I think he's done a cracking job here, and it's certainly a really really good read, worth exploring, and I think worth appreciating the science of it. Because it's worked out very, very cleverly, and uh, and I'd look forward to seeing what else he produced. You know, once you you learn a little bit, because you always learn a little bit after the first book. Yeah. Once he's learned a little bit, I'd look forward to seeing what what he comes up with next. That sounds really good. So that's the Shiva syndrome. Yep, and it's only available on Amazon in ebook, and you can get it for three pound ninety six. Brilliant. Okay, that's it for another episode of Data Slate. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email info at laveradio.com, Facebook slash laveradio, at laveradio on Twitter, or you can join the Skype chat channel by adding Fozzer101 to your Skype contacts. You can join us on TeamSpeak too, where commanders come in to hang out and chat, laveradio.teamspeak3.com. So until next time you're flying past our beacon, shields up pilots and enjoy the scenery. Bye. Thank you.